Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Sprogcast, all about feelings about birth. Sprogcast is brought to you by Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga. You can find them at pinterandmartin.com. Coming up today, we've got two interviews with Kim Thomas of the Birth Trauma Association and psychologist and doula Mia Scotland. We've also got a few sound bites from the RAW conference run by Sheena Byram and Sue Downs and our usual rundown of news and views. I'm Karen Hall. And I'm Mark Harris. And Mark, I think you've got some really exciting news. Oh, the book's out, Karen. The book's oh, the out. book. Oh, yes, I forgot. <laughs> I tell you what, the, 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 the most scared I've ever been is sending you a copy. <laughs> because you always <laughs> tell me the truth, Karen. Look, this is um, Pinter and Martin's latest edition, which is called Men, Love and Birth by the renowned speaker, midwife and podcaster, Mark Harris. Author. Well, yeah, you are now. You aren't renowned at that yet. It, yeah, the, the, the book's out and um, well, it's not officially launched until the 24th of uh, September, which by the time this goes out, that might have already happened, Karen. Maybe. Yeah, but very excited about it. It's a wonderful feeling, to be totally honest, Karen, to get the book in your hand. And I've always said the book itself is its own reward to me. Um, but it's lovely to read it and to get a sense that it might be helpful to people. Uh, I felt like on opening it, obviously, I felt trepidation that if, if I didn't like it, I would have to tell you that I didn't like it, which would be a terrible thing to have to do. Um, but it was it's just so nice and I will definitely definitely be taking it in the only reason I didn't take it into my antenatal group last night is because I want to read it um I don't want it to disappear like commando dad has disappeared because it's out all the time so I never get to read it um so I'm going to read this first and then I will put it in my library um I thought that the section on breastfeeding was very sensible which is how I assess all of these books and I'll, I'll settle for sensible um yeah sensible is where it's at and just generally think um i thought that the language might i might find it a bit challenging right but i don't because you struggle to read yeah well obviously i'm fairly (laughs) illiterate no i thought um the use of the word lover a lot is um strange to me yeah it didn't it wasn't jarring um some people are in relationships with their partner and their partner is their lover and I guess that's the spirit in which that um, subtitle is yeah. written in. Yeah, no, it's it's a perfectly good word. Well, the heart of the book is 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 really about making a, a man and a same-sex partner, for that matter, but a man making a connection with his partner, a loving connection that is felt by her, because it's in that context that the, the hormones related to birth are rampant and it abundant. It is quite saucy in places. It is. It is a bit. So how much is your book, Mark? I think it's. I think the ticket price is nine ninety nine. I think Pinter and Martin are offering it a little bit cheaper than that. Ah, and we're giving one. And we're giving one away. We are giving one away. So to get yourself your very own signed by the author copy of Men Love and Birth by the famous Mark Harris, you need to visit our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash sprogcast, and you have to leave a comment. And we will um, draw from the hat names um, from everybody who comments between now and when we start recording the next episode. So that's a nice, um, finite, recognisable deadline for you. Um, and we will send one lucky commenter a copy of Mark's book. Yeah, talk about a chance to be humbled. Mark, our Facebook is going to explode. Oh, I hope so. Did you also have another book that you were offering? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely got another book to give away, uh, Karen. It's uh, Mia Scotland's book. And everyone's going to get a chance to uh, to meet her through the interview. It's called Why Perinatal Depression Matters. It's Pinter and Martin. It's seven ninety nine. It's released on the 24th of September, but it's available now on Amazon and from Pinter and Martin. Fabulous book. Uh, Mia Scotland is amazing. Yeah. So we're going to be, pick two names from the commenters on our Facebook and send out some lovely books. And Mia's coming up later in the show. And... Um, what have we got on Facebook? Did many people comment? It's been a bit quiet. 
Yes, Sarah Hardwell said, what a great episode. Thank you. I found Emma talking about the first days particularly interesting and inspiring. Perhaps a discussion for the future could involve how midwives, how midwives feel supporting families from different socioeconomic groups and or cultural backgrounds would be an interesting subject area. Thanks for that, Sarah. And we'll, we'll give that some thought. And friend of the show, Maddie McMahon. We love you, Maddie. She liked your mention of doulas, Mark. Please do get in touch. We're on Twitter at Sprogcast and Facebook.com slash Sprogcast and SoundCloud.com slash Sprogcast. Come and listen. Come and find us. Come and tell us what you'd like. At the weekend, I managed to nip into the Raw conference for 15 minutes and record a few sound bites, um, which are coming up now. Today I'm being a roving reporter in the streets of Birmingham, um, searching out the RAW conference to talk to the delegates for Sheena and Sue's um, Compassion in Midwifery conference about how they're getting on and how much they're enjoying it. I just happened to be in Birmingham doing another study day, so I thought I might take advantage of it. Let's see how we get on. So, hi, how are, you, how are you getting on? Yeah, really, really enjoying today. It's really interesting. It's the first conference sort of thing I've ever been to, to be honest. Okay. So, I'm a first year student in life. Right. Um, but yeah, it's speaking to other midwives and like, relating with other students and their experience. So, I'm just finding it really interesting. Going so around nice really to meet some people. Yeah, really um, what, what stood out for you so far? Um, I think speaking to some of the other student midwives and some of like, the feelings that I'm having at the minute and yeah. realising it, it isn't just me and everybody else okay. so they're going through the same thing as well. Lovely, yeah. okay. And you're Louise. Louise Hi yes. Louise. Um, well, we're on um, facebook.com slash podcast if you want to have a listen. Okay. Um, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. My name's Ellie. I'm a third year student at Worcester. Right. Uh, my name's Fallon. I'm a second year student at UCLan. Okay, it's nice to meet you. How are Thank you enjoying you. it today? Very much so. What have you been to? Um, about the um, guidance frameworks for making a caseload midwifery education, which was very similar to what we're taught. Right, so that fitted with what you knew. Very well, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been to the students, um, Kirsten Baker's um, talk, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was really good. It really resonated with me as a student, and um, being Ellie was just talking about it then. Um, but I'm actually facilitating as well what today. What are you going to be doing? Um, I'm with Progress Theatre. <laughs> Oh, um, that sounds so, brilliant. Yeah, so it's super fun and it's really interactive towards the end. And um, we perform a little play, and it's all about compassion and maternity services. Um, and it's really good. So that's good. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sarah Curtis. I'm a student midwife at Birmingham City University, and I've come here to get re-enthused about midwifery. Is that happening for you? Yes. Good. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for your time. I'm Debbie. Hi Debbie. Hi. What do you do? I'm a lecturer, midwifery lecturer. Okay, locally? No, I lecture at Brighton University. Right, you've come quite away for today. Yes, long way. And what are you getting out of it? Has it been good? It's been absolutely fantastic. It's really um, trying to incorporate compassion into the curriculum. And it's such, when I say nebulous, I don't mean like in an awful term, but Compassion, how, how do you compartmentalise it? It's such how, an abstract. Absolutely. And how, how do you encourage that in students? But I think most students come in to the university with compassion anyway. And what is it? How do they lose it? What happens? Mm-hmm. Why, why do they lose it? Is it the sort of, I don't know, the organised chaos within the NHS yeah. that they lose it? Or is it how we educate them? I don't know. Okay. But this, this conference has been fantastic so far. Is it helping you to form those thoughts? It, it is. And actually, it's been very positive in the respect that actually we're doing quite well. But there are also other things that we can learn from it too. Okay. Thank you very much, Debbie. Okay. So I found Sue Down, who is one of the... What, what are you, Sue? Co-authors, co-editors of the book. Co-editors of the book. Um, how are you getting on today? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's great. And it's really um, it's delightful to have somebody else take it on, take the book on and run with it. I think that's the interesting thing that people have picked up on the ideas and independently of Sheen and I are just doing a whole range of things here in the UK and actually internationally and it's just really great picking it up and working with it. With such a comprehensive book that is full of ideas for people I can see how that would work. Yeah and the intention is it's actually real so it's not just philosophy and ideas 
it's actually got hints and tips that people can do something about and do something with. So it's gratifying to see that people are beginning to do that. Yeah, <laughs> you look really pleased. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Good. Um, for the tape, she's looking really pleased. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just okay, going to no stop problem. there so you can have your lunch. Thank you. I am loitering in the hallway near the loos, waiting for people to come out of workshops so that I can interview them without too much background noise, but everybody seems to be having such a lovely time and there's a massive buzz of chatter in the dining room. I'm just going to see if I can find someone else to talk to. My name is Carolyn Hasty and I'm a senior lecturer in Mover Free from Australia. I work at Southern Cross University and what I've got from, uh, I mean, what did I get from, what have I got from today so far? Oh, an enormous amount. And one of the things I'm really impressed with is the focus of this particular conference, which is all about compassion and kindness, mm -hmm. something that we all need to embody. And I really love being in the session looking at the salutogenic approach to education and talking, listening to those educators talk about how they're structuring their education has been really fantastic. Um, listening to how they do interviews to ensure that their students have compassion because we don't have that in Australia. Don't no, want compassion. <laughs> well, actually, I think we're missing a lot of that too, unfortunately, in the... Not only in the university, but also in the healthcare system. And I think it's interesting that ours is purely done on their academic ability. Mm -hmm. But of course, everyone who comes into midwifery has that total passion to make a difference for yeah. a woman and a baby. And I'm thinking, you know, really challenged to think about how we can bring that into our particular um, discipline within our university, because I think it's sadly lacking, even within our, yeah. our discipline. So has this been helpful? Oh, definitely helpful because, you know, when you're the only person promoting a certain line of reasoning in an organisation, it can make you feel like you're not actually right. But listening to all these people and seeing how it is, it's totally right. It's just helping you to get right over some So I can go back home with a, um, a more developed grounding in that this is actually what people are doing across the world yeah, that's and that lovely. if we want to be contemporary and um, competitive with the graduates that we're producing then we really need to look at what other people are doing and making sure that we're including that. So I've got mm -hmm. an argument yeah. um, to actually go back and talk about with my colleagues and were you over here anyway, or did you come for this? I came, no, I came yesterday for a conference yesterday that was a right. physiological birth. I was invited over to speak at that. Yeah. So I've done that, and then I saw ah. that this conference was on at the same time. And because I'm a Twitter buddy for a lot of the people who are yeah. here, I thought, oh, I'm going to hop up to Birmingham and go to that too. So that's how I'm Chance not to I've be come missed. to be here. And well, we're on Twitter too. It's just at Sprogcast. So that was a fun experience and I'm now in the lift leaving the building. Um, Sheena Blown says I've got a really nice smile so that was cheering and I'm going back to my own study name now. So um, a couple of weeks ago an article came out and we wanted to talk about that today. Yeah, was that the um, breastfeeding uh, may expose infants to toxic chemicals. Indeed, this is a study by the Harvard School of Public Health, which sounds like a pretty reputable institution, doesn't it? Did it give any hints of what this, these toxic chemicals were? It does give their name perfluorinated alkylite substances, or PFAs, which have been linked with cancer and interference with immune function. And the study... Um, which is quite recent, so it's it's nice and topical, and I had quite a few questions about it from people in, in breastfeeding antenatal sessions um, around the time this came out. Um, but it's quite small, right. and it's in a very restricted area. So 81 children in right. the Faroe Islands over a three-year period, right. and they're looking at the these PFAs in their blood at various intervals and showing that with the breastfed, exclusively breastfed babies, there was an increase in PFA concentration from uh, by about 20 to 30%. Mm, that's very interesting. I mean, it's good that you point out the size of the study and I'm not going to go on and on and on about the importance of reading evidence critically, but, you know, that's taken as read. 
and I'm not going to tell my chicken joke. But um, where would... I only have to edit it out again, Mark. <laughs> true. Where would um, uh, these women be coming in contact with these toxins? Well, that, I think, is the most interesting thing about this, um, that um, because the study is based in this very small area, the Faroe Islands, um, I looked on senseaboutscience.org, which is a great place to look for critical evaluation yeah. studies. And um, she, I think, points out that um, pilot whales form a really important part of the diet right. in the Faroe Islands. And um, the study authors themselves, she says, previously found to be a rich source of PFCs, she's calling right. them. Um so the actual amounts that might be transferred from mother to infant may not be directly translatable to other populations. What we're basically saying is we don't know if you can generalise from this one study set in the Faroe Islands to the general population, which makes it um, unreliable. One of the things that I, I would have liked to try and find out more about but haven't been able to was whether the levels of chemicals, yes, yes, these chemicals have been shown to be harmful and yes, they've been shown to increase in the um, systems of these babies, but it still doesn't actually demonstrate that that level is harmful. Right. So it's a bit scaremongery. It does kind of make people, oh no, what if we breastfeed and all our babies get cancer? The risk of, of not breastfeeding does inherently increase um, the, the risk of cancer, certain cancers anyway. Yes. And there are plenty of other protective factors going yeah. on here. Well, I had to think long and hard. You talk about the risks of not breastfeeding and, and you're referring to a section in the book about breastfeeding. I thought long and hard before going down that route. And um, in the end, I, I, I took some advice from Susan Last, brilliant editor from Lone Scribe. Um, and I, I, I think focusing on the risks of not breastfeeding is offering a different way of looking at feeding choices than what's popular out there. We've all heard the benefits of breastfeeding. I think we need to contrast that with the risks of not. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's a, a brave decision to use that wording in your book. In Not not in that, um, you know, oh my God, this could go horribly wrong, but that um, people shy away from using such blunt yeah, or addressing fact, it in that way. But why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't we tell people the truth? We're up against the milk companies and we, we hammer them every time we speak. And uh, they are arch, I would say, Machiavellian experts at manipulating information. And uh, they certainly have seem to have no qualms in um, using all kinds of ways to get their message across. And they would love this study. It's very easy to pull out those fine points saying, oh, chemicals increase in breastfed babies without ever addressing the fact that cows live in a polluted environment and eat nothing but grass. And having a, a very limited diet is one of those things that is likely yeah, to increase absolutely. the toxins in your system, um, surely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I've been influenced a lot by a, a woman called Dr. Jane Gonagill, but she's been she's one of the, the first psychologists to explore the use of gaming, you know, uh, video games in the context of relieving trauma. And yet there's a growing body of work that suggests and this is a bit counterintuitive that suggests that first person shooter games. Um, uh, can have a, d a direct impact on relieving trauma. She bizarrely went on to have a concussion industry, uh, injury in her kitchen. She banged her head and, and ended up with a year-long recovery from concussion and found that the use of computer games um, has an impact on uh, brain development, on recovery from trauma, um, which is really, really interesting. For example, playing Tetris for 10 minutes a day can have an impact on our stress levels in a positive way. Um, but her work on the, the, uh, the use of games in the context of trauma is very interesting and has some bearing, I think, on maybe how we, we go forward in looking at um, the experience of women who are experiencing post-traumatic stress syn uh, syndrome as a result of a birth experience and the growing area, um, which is men, who have been present at birth, who, have, who are experiencing uh, not only postnatal depression, but, but PTSD symptoms as well. Which does bring us very nicely to our topic for today. Um, not something I'm 
have a, a real academic knowledge of particularly, but I have talked to women who've had all kinds of um, experiences during birth that they've found very difficult to live with afterwards. Um, I had read Kim Thomas's interview a couple of years ago and actually um, reviewed it on my web blog. So it was really interesting to speak to her. And at the time, I had actually lent the book out to somebody who I felt would probably find it useful. Um, so is this something that um, you know much about, Mark? So I have some insight. I don't, I mean, Mia Scotland and uh, Kim Tom Thomas would obviously be uh, specialists in this area. And we're going to hear a lot more from them than from us. Well, shall we have a listen to Kim? My name is Kim Thomas. I'm a freelance journalist. I also do the media relations work for the Birth Trauma Association. And two years ago, I wrote a book on birth trauma, which, which I published to support uh, mothers and their partners who, who had experienced birth trauma. Well, thank you. Can you tell us what birth trauma is? It's a kind of shorthand name for post-traumatic stress disorder um, after birth. So people suffer um, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD after lots of traumatic situations. Um, the best known is, is veterans returning from war, but you can also have PTSD if you've um, suffered sexual assault or you've witnessed a terrorist attack, for example, or you've been in a car accident, lot, lots of things really. But some women have a birth experience that is so bad that they, they suffer PTSD after giving birth. So birth can be right up there with war and sexual assault. Yes, it can be. It, it, it sounds amazing. And I think some people find that difficult to believe. But when you think about it, birth can can sometimes be um, traumatic. Sometimes um, there's situations where the woman thinks her baby is about to die. Um, you know, when, when something goes horribly wrong, sometimes women lose a lot of blood. They think that they're, they're going to die. You know, the, but birth can, can be dangerous. We know that. So um, and those are the sorts of situations where you have this sort of sense of peril where women do tend to get um, PTSD afterwards. So we're talking about really severe situations. Like... Yes, though, having said that, it can happen in less severe situations as well. And PTSD is quite difficult in that, you know, as with a lot of psychological disorders, there, there is a definition for PTSD. And, and if you meet all the criteria, you can have a diagnosis of PTSD. Um, and this is decided usually by a, an American psychiatric book called the DSM. Um, and but, but what we find is that quite a lot of women have some of the symptoms of PTSD. They don't get the full-blown disorder, but they have some symptoms such as uh, flashbacks and, and nightmares. Um, that wouldn't officially give them a diagnosis, but that you know that they still have some elements of the disorder, mm -hmm. and that can happen without necessarily thinking that you're going to die or the baby's going to die. But just sometimes, if you've had a very very difficult labour, you know, for example, if you've been you know so been left for hours without pain relief um, and they don't know what's going on, um, they you know they they have a difficult forceps delivery, they they have you know a difficult episiotomy, you know those, those yeah. kinds of things. Um, th there's what one woman I interviewed for my book who'd um, she'd had quite a lot of things go wrong, but one one of the things that has stayed vividly in my mind was that when uh, after she'd given birth, uh, she had a retained placenta and the obstetrician came and, and tried to manually pull the placenta out um, and she you know she didn't have any pain relief at that point and she said it was the most painful thing she'd ever experienced and, and that when I when I think about it that still makes me go cold actually because it sounded so horrendous. Mm. And birth is such a huge life-changing you know significant event that I guess any kind of birth has is, stays with you so if you've had a difficult experience and that I mean I I had flashbacks after my birth, but it was a, a entirely positive. Yes, I quite well, liked them. <laughs> but... I think it's an amazing thing, birth. I mean, it, it, as you say, it's it's such a life changing experience, and I, I think we should recognise that actually that for everybody who gives birth, you know, it's this momentous thing. It's been a huge, you know, physical struggle usually, even if it's not. Um, particularly painful or traumatic and, and and at the end you've got you know you've got this amazing thing you've got a, a new life and I think we, we don't always recognize that we don't always 
nurture women enough after, after birth and say, you know, what you've done is quite a remarkable thing, really. I, I, I do think we ought to do that. It's, it's um, sometimes a question of finding a balance between saying this is an ordinary thing that women do every day that we've been doing for millennia and it yeah. doesn't necessarily need sort of medical supervision all the time. Or um, And then on the other side of the coin, it's amazing and you have to act, sort of acknowledge, as you say, the, the momentousness of what yes. you've done. Yes, I think that's right. It is that balance. In, in, you know, it's a very ordinary thing and it's a very amazing thing. I mean, that's life, isn't it? It's kind of miracle of life. I, mean, I remember reading an interview with a midwife once and she said she, she thought what she did was the most amazing job, you know, because you go into a room and there are two people in the room and at the end there'd be three people in the room, you know, that you, you left the room and there are three people rather than huh, two yeah. So just, um, we'd better stop gushing, we're supposed to be talking about yes. trauma. <laughs> um, can you tell me the prevalence of birth trauma in the UK? Well, we, we don't know exact figures and there have been various studies. At, at the low end, we think it's about 1.5% of women have full-blown PTSD after birth. And that translates into about 10,000 women in, in England and Wales every year. That's quite high. It is quite high, and that you know that is the low end. And you know, higher end estimates tend to be about six or seven percent. And and then there have also been studies that show, you know, in other countries that say, for women having some symptoms but not full blown disorder, it's something like one in four. Um, so so there are a lot of women out there who who, you know, they who do feel traumatized after birth. Mm. What what can people do if they're experiencing this? The first thing to do is is get a diagnosis um, and that isn't always easy because a, a lot of health professionals aren't really um, aware of it um, so uh, one thing you can do is go to your GP um, and take the leaflet from the Birth Trauma Association website that, that explains what it is and then hopefully if you do get a diagnosis you can get treatment and um, NICE it recommends two treatments in the UK you know the two treatments for which there is an evidence base and that's um, trauma-focused CBT and the other is something called uh, EMDR or eye movement desensitization um, and reprocessing. There are other treatments that are being tested. I mean, a whole variety of treatments, actually, some more bizarre sounding than others, but those, yeah. at the moment, those are the two recognised ones. Can you explain briefly the eye movement one? Because that's fascinating. Yes, it is quite hard to explain, really. Um, Sorry. <laughs> it came, the, the, the woman who discovered it, uh, I think it's called Dr. Francis Shapiro, sort of discovered it by accident almost. But the idea is to talk about your memories, um, uh, and the therapist will use something. Uh, it, 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 an object such as a pencil or something to kind of wave in front of your eyes um, to, to make your eyes move back and forth. Um, and so as you, as the other idea is that as you're talking about the memory, it gets processed into long-term memory rather than short-term memory. Um, because they think that what happens with PTSD is that your bad experience, which normally goes into long-term experience, uh, memory and you can kind of gradually forget about it and deal with it stays in short-term memory and that's why you get flashbacks um, and EMDR weird though it sounds somehow seems to be able to help people move that memory into long-term store so that you can be you can store it away and don't retrieve it unless you want to and there's an evidence base for this, isn't there? There is an evidence base, yes. I, th I think when you talk to about people to people about it for the first time, they tend to think this this is some weird, wacky alternative therapy. But actually, it's a recognised therapy. It's an evidence base. And, um, you know, I've, I've talked to women who had it, and they said it's absolutely amazing. You know, you wouldn't think it works, but, but it does. Okay, so and do you work for the Birth Trauma Association, so supporting women um, who are experiencing this? Can Can you tell us a little bit about their work? Yes, we're a very small charity, actually. Um, well, there's loads we'd love to do and we're not able to do because we just don't have the resources or the finances. So we're all volunteers. M most of what we do at the moment is we have a website that's got lots and lots of information on it and we have a Facebook group on, on which women can share um, their experiences. And, and that's quite valuable because a, a lot of women who suffer birth trauma feel very isolated and they find that their friends and family don't really understand what's happening to them. So... Um, you know the Facebook group is is, is very valuable. Yeah. We also try and raise awareness by talking to the press. So I've just done two interviews with the Daily Mail this week, for example, um, about a birth trauma case that happened recently. Um, 
and we would love to do loads loads more you know we'd love to be able to fund um peer support and so on but at the moment we don't have to we don't have the resources to do that a few of the people I've spoken to in the last few months have um, talked about the effect of one born every minute on their work. Has it had any impact in your sort of area? Only in the sense that what we find is that a lot of women who, who write on the Facebook group say they find it very, very hard to watch one born every minute. You know, it's, it's one of those things that, that is quite triggering um, and they feel it gives us an unrealistic um, view of what birth is like because women on programme do tend to have positive births on the whole and they they feel it, it's very hard for women with birth trauma they don't like or they, or they often don't like hearing about other people's birth experiences yeah. you know either bad or good actually that you know that they they can be triggering so um a lot of people interestingly um within uh, sort of birth professionals and so on that i talked to dennis walsh for example spoke about how um the increase in that kind of program that kind of publicity for birth is actually increasing um a, a phobia of birth oh, amongst first-time mothers where, where previously phobia of birth has been more second-time mothers who had had a difficult experience the first yeah. time around they are now treating first-time mothers before they give birth for a phobia that might be influenced by media i, I suppose before you give birth for the first time you don't really have much idea what it's going to be like do you and i'm such an abstract it is, you know, and I, but I was quite old when I gave birth and um, lots of my friends had, had babies by that time. And, you know, their experiences were so vast in range. You know, I had friends who had two-hour labours and they had a wonderful experience and it was a happy experience. And then I had friends with 30-hour labours there, everything had gone wrong. And you don't know what's going to happen to you, really. You don't know what it's going to be like until until you do it yourself. And you can't really be prepared for every eventuality because things happen during birth that you, you've got no idea that they, they might happen to you. I, I think that's one of the hard, really hard things for anti-natal educators is because I, I, I think you want women to go in with a positive attitude because going into birth fearful is, is really awful. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to give a completely unrealistic idea of what it might be like. So. Yeah, you have to really find a way of, of navigating the path between being over idealistic or at least being perceived as that when you're, you're just saying this is normal, you can do it. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, preparing for um, the amount of flexibility one needs in birth planning. Yes. Um, so would you like to give us the details of the Birth Trauma Reference Association, should anybody wish to access it? The best thing, I guess, is to go to the webpage, which is www.birthtraumaassociation.org.uk, and then the other contact details will be on there, um, okay. you know, links to the Facebook page and so on. So that's the best that's the best thing to do. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much for talking to us. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank, thank you very much, Kat. Okay, thanks. Great to you. Karen, there's a there's a piece of research here that you sent me. Um, who's the source of that? This is from a um, a Scottish NHS website, um, and it's looking at the question: Is eye movement desensitisation and reprocessing an effective treatment for trauma experienced during childbirth? Oh. And their answer is that there's very little direct evidence, but there does seem to be some, and certainly the nice guidelines support using it for people with PTSD and classify women who have experienced birth trauma as being at risk for PTSD. So that's how it sort of jigsaws together. Okay, I get that. Okay, so, so that piece of evidence suggests that the EDMR, as it's called, uh, could be useful for women that that are at risk of developing PTSD symptoms and men, of course. Yeah, though it's, it's yeah, it doesn't refer to men. No, it doesn't tell us anything about no, that. But human beings. So, and you, you, you mentioned another study, the Journal of Perinatology. Can you say more about that? This is, um, this is not to do with the EMDR, but it's um, looking at pro the progress of PTSD symptoms following birth in a study of mothers and high-risk infants. So it's basically about trying, just trying to understand how this um, stress disorder can arise and what sort of um, factors are going to predict it. Right. Um, and it 
concludes that mothers of high-risk infants can develop early or late PTSD and its course can be influenced by factors besides medical status. So it's basically saying it's not about the outcome, which is what we know and we've said before, isn't it? It's about the experience. Yeah. Um, so this is in the Journal of Perinatology. Very good. That's a long word. That's very good. Thanks. Thanks. By um, Kim Lee Kim et al. in 2015. And I'll put the link up on Facebook for people to have a look at. And finally, I guess before we get to Mia Scotland's interview, there was that piece in the International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia. Well uh, done. Yeah, thank you. Post-traumatic stress disorder managed successfully with hypnosis and the rewind technique, uh, two cases uh, in obstetric patients. Very interesting. It's only two cases, um, but th th there was seen to be some impact on the experience of the people that experienced the rewind technique. And is this something that Mia talks about? She does talk about uh, the rewind technique, but the rewind technique is the technique that I was stumbling over earlier that really Dr. Bandler and Dr. Grindler uh, discovered. And they, they, they were, uh, Dr. Bandler was a kind of a, math, uh, a computer uh, graduate and Dr. Grindler is a linguist. And um, so they came at mental health in a very different way to people that were inside mental health. And Dr. Bandler decided, right, I need to be studying people who have successfully overcome phobias and um, trauma in order to find out what they're doing inside their experience in order to have already overcome it. Where the, the focus of psychiatry and psychology had always been studying people who currently have the problem or the symptoms. They said, no, 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 let's look at people who have spontaneously or have found some way to overcome those issues and study how they did it. And they developed this rewind technique based on disassociation. So what seems to happen is how they have the experience encoded inside their neurology shifts. So they're able to um, take the emotional energy out of the experience but keep all the learnings that the experience has generated for them um, and this article is basically looking at two people one of whom did that and it worked what one of the things i really like is um when it describes the woman who used self-hypnosis and it just says which she used during labor in which she had an uneventful water birth and i just think yes uneventful that's what we're aiming for that seems to me to be the gold standard Yes. Do you know, a lot of a lot of clients I've worked with over the years in non-birth related trauma um, are concerned that when their feelings start to shift towards the trauma, they don't want to lose the learning and they don't want to lose the experience because they perceive that that is is adding something to their life in some way. It's kind of linked to who they are. The, the miraculous thing for me in my experience with using this technique um, is that people report being able to keep the learning, but suddenly um, their relationship to the experience shifts. And uh, that seems to me very important. Interesting stuff. Are we ready to listen to Mia now? Oh, you're in for a treat. I had a great time with Mia. Uh, some brilliant content coming up. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, first of all, I just want to say thanks, um, uh, Mia, for agreeing to be interviewed on this podcast. You're more than welcome. Really it's do appreciate it. Absolute pleasure and, to be um, It's great to have you on the podcast. I'm holding your book, <laughs> Why Perinatal um, Depression Matters. Yeah. Good feeling when you first got hold of it? Yeah, amazing feeling. I can't believe someone else put all the work into producing this. It's, it's incredible. And I just sat and wrote on a Tuesday. Thoroughly enjoyed writing it. And look at that. It's, yeah, the editorial process is me. great, isn't it? Yeah. What, what, what drove you to write that book? Well, it's kind of what I've been doing for years and years and years, actually. Um, working with people who are struggling with depression or anxiety. And so about ten years ago, I started to specialise in birth, pregnancy... Um, women who were frightened during pregnancy um, worked with hypnobirthing to help them to cope with their fears. Um, and it's just grown from there, really, a passion in getting the perinatal period right. Yeah. Making it as rewarding and as um, going, helping it go as smoothly as possible, because it's so important to get that bit right. Can you tell us a little bit about your background before that? 
So I trained as a clinical psychologist, um, which basically means I did a degree in um, psychology, what makes people tick. And then I specialised into, well, what do we do when it doesn't go so well? So clinical psychology is about helping people who are having problems, using the knowledge we have about basic human behaviour. Mm. Um, and so then I started working in the NHS, um, working with adults struggling with anxiety and depression. And to be honest, I burnt out. It was quite difficult working in the NHS. It was difficult managing waiting lists. It was difficult saying to people, I can help you in six weeks, but you have to wait two years. Mm. Um, I had started to have babies myself. I found it difficult to juggle the career with the babies. Yeah. And I thought, right, I'm going to take a break, step out of the NHS with the birth of my third baby and work with happy people. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find any? <laughs> into a world of um, something that just fascinated me which was how something so feminine and important had become so medicalized yeah. and I was seeing the problems coming from that the trauma that was coming out people who had had difficult births and trying to understand what the difficulties were about and um, being quite taken by how much of it was to do with having had their births medicalized mm. and thinking this is just not what they were evolved to to um, expect in life, if you like, at an yeah. evolutionary level. I get that. I've always been interested in feminist issues, and it just tapped into all that for me, is how are we treating women around birth and pregnancy? Um, what impact is that having? Um, do we need to make it a better experience, and if so, why, and how? Do, do, do you feel that birth is, is a feminist issue, then? In, in its con con Say more about that. Well, of course it is. Birth happens to women. Well, okay. Yeah, it happens to women, and it's something that, dare I say, for those who haven't had babies, is difficult to understand. And I think that one of the problems with birth is that it has been medicalised primarily by a patriarchal system. I'm not saying men, I'm not saying women, but a patriarchal system. I think it'd be fair to say men. Well, 50% men. <laughs> <laughs> there are more female obstetricians now than any other exactly. time. Exactly. But they train inside a system, which has exactly. been... Exactly soaked with testosterone exactly. and paternalism. Yeah. So they have intuitive responses that are almost masculine. Yeah, yeah. So it's a cultural issue, it's a patriarchal yeah. issue. No, I get that, I get yeah. you were avoiding it saying it meant. Issue. Probably is men, historically. It's not about man-woman. It isn't. It's about how patients or how women, when they're pregnant, are treated. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. And I, in my work, I, I, I struggle with being caricatured as being stereotypical. Mm. But some of that... Uh, mammalian masculine and feminine responses is mm. flowing from an amygdala response which mm. is millions and millions and millions and millions of years old mm. when responding in masculine and feminine ways was rooted in survival and had mm. nothing to do with egalitarianism mm. Mm. so but I get, mm. I get what you're saying so mm. your early work mm. you say you sort of started to explore happy people so what sort of things were you doing early could you tell us about how it's how it's kind of developed over time Come to, to where you are now yeah well, in this lovely I, office well, <laughs> when I was in the NHS, I did some work in a psychosexual clinic, and um, that's when I started meeting women who were struggling to um, kiss their husbands, look at their husbands, certainly couldn't have sex with their husbands. Some of them were struggling to kiss their children because they'd been traumatised at birth. And that's when I started hearing the effect that birth has on these, on these families' lives, how devastating it can be. And... Um, then I had my own babies and realised how much an issue it is about empowerment and whether you can feel really proud of yourself or whether you can feel absolutely dreadful and it's all to do with the birth process and how you're treated during the birth. Just developed a, a really strong fascination in, on the impact of birth and um, how so much of it is to do with valuing women, what their bodies are capable of, the children and increasingly the roles that the father has to play in all of that. Yeah. So, so when I left, sorry, to answer no, your question. Cool. You so I'd started doing this work in the psychosexual service and been thinking, wow, these women are being traumatised not by the birth, not by the pain of birth, but by the way they were treated. And that was coming through quite clearly in the women I was working with. It was the interpersonal relationship between them and the doctor or them and the midwife that, that was the traumatising, often what we call hotspot in psychology, the traumatising factor. So anyway, working with happy people, yeah, so I thought, well, I'll do this hypnobirthing, because it just sounded right up my street, always been a believer in trusting nature, trusting our bodies physiologically to mend themselves, etc., etc., and certainly to give birth. 
So hypnobirthing was just right up my street. Used hypnobirthing to have my baby, and um, then wanted Your to baby? teach it. With so I've got three babies. With each of the babies, did you use hypnobirthing? No, I didn't. I, I, it wasn't in Britain until I no. had my third. Cool. So he's ten, and it just actually come to Britain when he, I was pregnant with him, and I thought, oh, I'll use this for his birth, and then I can teach it as well. Wow, from a, from a foundation of experience. Exactly, yeah. which is what I did. So I've been teaching hypnobirthing for ten years. I still do, because hypnobirthing is about putting couples in the right mindset to be positive and relaxed about going into parenthood. And I think our society erodes that with the negativity that's out there. So it's like an antidote to our culture, if you like, that's full of negativity and fear stories and what if. Well, one point every minute fits our cultural script. And this is where the problem lies, is people um, are part of a culture which sees birth as medicalised, dangerous, um, done to you, um, and in a hospital. So, of course, people like it. They don't know any different. Yeah. Is that unfair to say that of people? No. Dennis says that tocophobia is on, a ri on the rise amongst be. women that have never had a baby. Yes, it's the primary tocophobia. Absolutely. Yeah. They're well, terrified. Uh, any, any ideas where, where, where that's flowing from? Well, that's cultural. That's absolutely cultural. So there's two areas from that. The first is, um, you know, if you've been told from the year since you were two that it's going to be the worst pain you've ever felt <laughs> in your life, you're not going to look forward to it, are you? But also, if you've seen images on television of women on their back, screaming, bright lights, sweating, panting, drama, babies dying, I mean, well, I know they don't, but that's the image that our culture comes It's rare, isn't it? But they do, but it's rare. What I meant was they don't on one minute. I get it. Minute. No, yeah. I get that. Um, you're creating fear. And I think, I think women are not frightened of the process of giving birth. I think they're frightened of what it entails in our society at the moment. I yeah. think they're frightened of the hospital systems. They're frightened of the dehumanising aspect of it. Why? A woman on her back with her legs up in stirrups. Yeah. No woman that I've ever met would say, oh, that's a nice position. Yeah. So that's one reason. But I think the other reason, actually, which I can't remember if I've touched on it in the book. I don't think I have. That's cool. the next book. Hey. Is disgust. You heard it here. So when it's not just fear of pain. It's fear of disgust. So what women see in childbirth is something quite animalistic. There's kind of wet things and a bit of goo and a bit of... Um, Mooing, as the NCT yeah. like to call it, and I think women are gen, you know, struggle to think that they could become that animal part of themselves. They want mm. to stay clean, quiet, demure, and pretty, and that's why hypnobirthing is so popular because it gives them a solution to getting through quite a physiological process, but to do it with dignity. Wow! Gives um, them a solution how? Because they can hypnobirthing, they see as being a way of being able to birth in a relaxed, calm, peaceful way. Not in a hot, sweaty, mm. mooing kind of a way. Brilliant. Does that make sense? It does completely. So that's why hypnobirthing is so popular at the moment because it solves the problem of women thinking, oh my gosh, I really don't want to be reduced to some kind of animal when I'm having my baby and I don't want to have a hippie birth. I'm not a tree hugger. Yeah. I don't like anything to do with germs. I want to stay nice and clean. What am I going to do? How am I going to get through labour with everybody watching me? So which, which method did you choose when you first learned? There was only one in Britain, it was Mongan. Marie Mongan. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that's what I taught. I taught Mongan for seven years. I teach now Mindful Mama, the one day. Yeah. The one day your, your experiences with Mongan over the years, can you talk a little bit about your experience of using it over those years before you transitioned to a different... I love the programme, the unfolding of it, if you like, helping people come from a place of being very, very frightened and watching them transform and move to a place of feeling excited and empowered and um, at peace you know that's what you need in a pregnancy we Stuff know it. women need to be at rest at peace for the baby to have the best start in life it's lovely it was it still is amazing to see that happen it's beautiful it's and important. partners uh, you know I, i've had experience with partners when they talk about hypnobirthing they cringe <laughs> at certain things on certain methods and i'm not an expert on the methods right but imagining the flower opening and and you can blokes looking at a bloke and actually it was the blokes I loved working up? with the most because you do you did see again at the risk of stereotyping and overgeneralizing often it would be the woman who booked it yeah. and she'd drag him along and he's sitting there thinking really but within three hours because the first three hours was what we called so that's the theoretical basis where you help them understand why they're doing hypnobirthing totally sold because yeah. it's all based in logical biological kind of statements of fact it's all about you know how your hormones work better for you when you're relaxed yeah. and they don't work for you if you're scared yeah and the men totally get that and by the yeah. end of the three hours they're like oh, 
Yeah, I get this. So I've, had, I've had men tell me that it's enhanced their life. Because mm. they, they, they have an access exactly. to a different way of seeing yeah. the world or an altered state of consciousness yeah. that they can actually have some volition over yeah. igniting or inducing. Yeah. And I now teach, we now teach men to use the techniques. We teach the men the techniques. But before, with Mongan, you teach it to the woman only. Right. But with Mindful Mama, we're teaching the men the techniques so that they can um, manage that adrenaline that they might be feeling in the birthing room yeah. because they haven't got nature doing that for them in the same way that a woman has. Brilliant. So we're teaching those techniques to men as well. So the Monga method, you've, you've moved more, you've moved to mindful mama. Oh, no so mention of hypno or birthing in there. Was no. there a reason for that? Yeah, there was. Um, we wanted mindful mama to reach a, a mainstream audience, and we had understood that some people are put off by the word hypno. They're frightened by it. I think so. Um, and we didn't want that to happen, but it is still very much steeped in hypnosis and NLP techniques. Oh, I get that. What about the study, though? Because, you know, those people out there that believe in evidence will be saying, ah, there's no evidence for mindful mama now or hypnobirthing. The SHIP trial showed that there was, people were more relaxed. They showed yeah. less fear of birth before. No difference in epidural rates. No difference in epidural rates, but, but a decrease in fear of birth. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Now, that in itself, if you look at other research, I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head now, that showed that people with reduced fear of birth had better birth outcomes. So you right. think, well, if you pick and choose your research, you can actually support... Oh, good point. So, so if, if we, if, that's a good point. So you, what you're saying, I think, is that other, other pieces of research show better outcomes for women that are less anxious and yeah. fearful going in. Yeah. Because the SHIP trial chose not to measure some of those things yeah. and chose a measurement that was really easy to measure... Yeah. Um, if they were looking at other birth, birth outcomes, they might well have found a plethora of increased outcomes with the hypnobirthing group. Yeah, or the other thing to think about with the SHIP trial is when it started, hypnobirthing practitioners were all quite frustrated because everybody was saying, this is not going to work. You can't create change with a little two-hour talk and a CD. Was it two hours or one hour? I don't much. know. You're reminding me. Uh, that, that, so what? They got two hours mm. on a, a CD. CD? No, and a CD. And that was it? Yeah. It wasn't hypnobirthing. God, that doesn't compare with what, no, what you're doing. of course it doesn't. We'll talk in a minute about what you do. Yeah. Because I think uh, listeners will be interested in that. So, in a way, I, it frustrates me research a bit. Because mm. I'm, I'm a great advocate of research. Mm. But I always say research is not to be believed in. Mm. It's to be tested. Mm. And that the findings of research do not result in truth. No. Only correlation. I don't actually listen to research until it's as strong as the link that smoking is bad for you. When it gets that strong, like all the research about um, delayed cord clamping is beneficial, that's when I start to um, talk about it. But actually, I will never take one piece of research and no. start quoting it as... Because research is so fickle, it really is. And it's, a, and it's a human endeavour, and humans are biased by the very fact that they're thinking. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, I, it really has its limitations. And, and, you know, the gold standard of the RCT, it's no surprising that an RCT is considered the gold standard when the power holders for years have been men mm. who like to count and quantify mm. in ways that give the impression of mm. coming to a, a... Well, what really did it for me on the RCT was um, there was a study that came out. It went viral amongst all us um, natural birth Facebook groups or whatever, and it was a study that had shown that... What do they call it? Posturing. Posturing. Posturing in labour, i.e. moving oh, in labour, doesn't help position the baby. It doesn't reduce the amount of back-to-back -back babies being Really? Born. And that was an RCT, and I'm like, gosh, I didn't know that. I've been teaching that if the woman moves, then it helps. Well, what they did in this RCT, remember, you, with an RCT, you have to keep all the variables regular. Oh, God. They told the women what posture to get into. They did an um, arm at the beginning of every single labour when they were all exactly two centimetres. So how they knew they were all exactly two centimetres? There must have been an awful lot of internal... Um, so an ARM at two centimetres? I think it was two, two or four, an early ARM. That's a scandal in and of itself. Well, think about the amount of looking you're doing to make sure you get the right time when you do the IRM so that you've got um, the variables all the same in all these women. They're, telling, they're getting them on their back and then getting them not on their back, telling them when to do it. And the research showed that posturing doesn't help. And this went viral. And we're all reading this thinking, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So next time a woman who I work, because I'm a birth doula as well. Next time you're a birth doula as well? Yeah, yeah, I'm a birth doula as well. So next time we're going to hospital with a woman in labour and the doctor says to her, there's no evidence base that it makes any difference whether you move around in labour or not. What am I to say? I say, well, yeah, you're right. 
it was an RCT. It was the gold standard of research, and that's what it showed. You see the, the craziness of it. Birth is not something you can measure. It's a physiological process. You can't time exactly. it. You can't dictate it. Exactly. And the very fact that we have structures that are driven by those priorities, you know, mm -hmm. eliminating risk, yeah. um, measuring what's going on, yeah. for me, points to the, ma the masculine domination and testosterone-ridden yeah. nature of yeah. the structures. For example, you wouldn't go and listen to a symphony thinking, I'm going to measure this. <laughs> if we can only get to the end quicker. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. How many A's are in this symphony? Exactly. We measure all the A's oh. and then we know how many A's there are. Exactly. How are they doing on my <laughs> Gantt chart of orchestras? It's just ridiculous. Because, but, the, but the metaphor of story, symphony, narrative applies to birth so beautifully. Mm. And then we force it into a narrow, mm. constricted, mechanistic mm. model. I mean, we get it. With, we do get it with, with sex, but we didn't 150 years ago. So as I understand it, 150 years ago... We, we get what with sex? That it's, that it's something that unfolds, that it's something it's, that has its natural Some course. of us do, do yeah. <laughs> I mean, some men have an attitude to sex, You're which right, is very similar. You know, let's get yeah, finished. Yeah. It, yeah, so beginning, middle and end. Process yeah. driven. Yeah. You know, and That's I know when I've finished. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, you're absolutely but, right. But I'm not talking all men, he says. No, no. Blushing. <laughs> Good job, it's not really. No, yeah, go on, I get, right. no, I I get what I was going to say, so 150 years ago, it was... There was a problem of outcome in the sense that women were not getting pregnant. So people couldn't consummate their marriages because women were so frightened because they were taught that sex is going to hurt you and that it's not something you can enjoy because we didn't understand the sexual right. response cycle. So women were being measured and tested and checked and they were being drugged as well so they'd relax enough to be able to have sex. And it was a whole issue 150 years ago in Victorian Wow, Britain. and that's, yeah. your, that's part of your expertise, isn't it? Psychosexual. Mm, mm. Wow. And I think we're in the same place with birth. We're trying to measure it, force it, dictate it. Wow, Women are terrified, their bodies aren't working properly. And if we just back right off, create the right conditions, we'll find babies come out and women enjoy it. And we'll find out there's a birth response cycle. Wow. We didn't know there was a sexual response cycle in women at all 150 years ago. We just didn't know? No, they had no idea. Didn't even know the clitoris existed, let's face it. Well, they did, but they didn't understand, didn't understand quite what to do with <laughs> He says, looking away, we still don't, we still don't, man. A woman's sexual response was in danger of being called a nymphomaniac, and that was a mental disease. When you say sexual response, you mean the orgasm? Well, orgasm. just any kind of willingness, enjoyment of sexuality, wow. lubrication, opening up, right. receiving, and orgasming, yeah. yeah. The whole thing, whereas women were so frightened, there was no, I mean, I'm generalising. No, no. Queen Victoria, she enjoyed sex, but anyway. Yeah. So the point is that we began to understand that if you create the right conditions, women can really enjoy sexuality. Yeah. And I think we're the same with birth. If we, we can understand that if women have the right conditions to birth, they can really enjoy having babies. Well, that to us in our society seems crazy. People look at me, and I won't say this to many people, but they're like, what's bonkers? And that's what they thought 150 years ago as well about wow. women and sexuality. Yeah, it's linking in my mind with orgasmic birth. I, I had a client yeah. once who, who said to me, and I knew her quite well, are you comfortable with me masturbating? Because During her birth? Yeah, mm. and I, yeah, her partner was there. Mm. <laughs> she mm. wasn't asking it to be an extended role of the midwife. Mm. So I said, of course, you know, mm. comfortable. Because when she was, when sexual arousal was mm. being heightened mm. and coming to release for her, which obviously can be multiple times for mm. In 50 years' time, there won't need to be hypnobirthing. There won't need to be people like me doing antenatal classes. And let's try and think positively about your birth because we'll, hopefully women will be getting pregnant. 50 thinking. years? You're an optimist. Me and Dennis have a beer once a month. We've been knowing each other for 24 years and we sit there moaning about how we've seen so little change within birth structures. I hope you're right. So do I. But it's people like you, I think. The, working from the grassroots that will affect change. Mm -hmm. Like even Illich says, you know, he says it, it won't be the medical academics or the medical mm -hmm. practitioners that shift the service because they're thinking within the same paradigm. Well, yeah. I'm waiting for women to get angry. I'm waiting for women to get on the streets. I'm waiting for women to have their placards and say, this isn't good enough. I'm not going to be treated like this again. This is why I've got birth trauma. This is why I'm frightened of birth. You can't do this to women in hospitals, but it's not happened yet. Not yet. <laughs> so a woman makes contact with you or she's referred? No, I don't get many referrals. So, Sometimes I've been recommended by a midwife, but she always makes contact with me because right. I'm completely independent. I get that. Not related to the NHS at all. So yeah, women will contact me. She'll have heard either through a friend or a relative, or she might, or she might have found me online. Yeah. And she, she makes an appointment with you. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the kind of work 
that you do with, with that woman? So generally I work with women who are pregnant, basically, and are frightened, so tocophobic women. This is women who might not have had any babies before, they're terrified with the thought of giving birth, and they need help to manage their anxiety and to help them through the idea of having a baby. Um, maybe they're thinking of a caesarean section and they're looking at their options. Some women, a lot of women, come to me because they've had a baby before that was traumatic. They find themselves pregnant again and they're frightened because they're thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to do that again. So they need some work to help sort the trauma out and then get them ready for this next birth. Mm. Uh, some women want me to do that and be their doula at the same time, so it's a part of the journey. Oh, that's interesting. And then I also work with women postnatally who are struggling with um, motherhood. Would you say you've seen quite a lot of PTSD or postnatal well, depression classically? Yes, yes, a lot of PTSD. In my experience, um, a lot of postnatal depression is slightly different to other depressions I might have worked with. And I'm not sure if this is um, just me. But in my experience, a lot of postnatal depression is about stress. It's stress overload. Now, I know the thing about depression is it's a um, deactivating system, usually. So it's a system whereby the mind and body have shut down. It's a kind of coping system, um, a response to... It's, it's the freeze part of fight or flight. Right. But, of course, when you're a new mom, you can't shut down very easily because you have to still look after the baby. You have to yeah. still get up in the night. You still have to get up in the morning. So it kind of becomes a stress overload. So yeah, so going back to how do you spot trauma? So often it is about it feeling raw, it happened only yesterday. You can't talk about it without getting some kind of physiological response, whether that be swallowing or tearfulness or anxiety, heart palpitations. And that's always a sign. If a woman can't talk about it without getting upset, it's still raw. And if it's yeah. still raw, it hasn't been processed. It's unhealed. Mm. And where would you go from there? So then we treat the trauma. So there's some very nice techniques, as you know, um, hypnotherapeutic techniques to release trauma. We know from sports players that... Um, I'll give you an example. Good. So there's a piece of research done where um, basketball players were split into two groups. One half was told to practice shooting before a game or before the test, and the other half were told to sit down, relax, and imagine themselves shooting. All right? mm. Now, we know when you sit down, relax, and imagine yourself doing something, the brain um, fires off in a similar way to it would to what it would do if you were actually doing it. Yeah. Okay, so in other words, it's mental rehearsal, what yeah. we call visual rehearsal. Micro movements of all the muscles yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And what this research found was that the ones who'd practiced beforehand didn't do as well as those who had visualized beforehand. Okay? Really? Yep, it's more powerful to visualize it. So you think, really? And they think, well, why is that? And then you think, I know, the ones practicing got it wrong half the time, the ones visualizing got it right every single time. <laughs> Better practice. How interesting is that? <laughs> so they were stimulating the, the micro-muscle movement, of mm. and it was in the context of success. Mm. So hypnosis is just about that. It's about relaxing and getting really? your mind to visualise it, to create the changes in your body. Mm. And so um, with trauma release, what we're doing is we're getting the mind to visualise and process the trauma in a way they couldn't do at the time. Wow in a nice and relaxed way. So you're rewiring the brain, the neocortex is getting a voice like, it's okay, it's Well, So okay. they're kind of looking at it in a relaxed state, what happened before, and mm. making a different connection. Yeah. What about those women, though, and they'll be listening, who say, I can't visualise. See I it. Say, don't try and see it. Don't, don't even go there. Just imagine it. I use the word brilliant. imagine. Just oh, take yourself brilliant. there. And that's then brilliant. they'll bring it up themselves. And, just and how, how, many, how many sessions would you have with clients? This is a difficult one, you know, because I think it's a little bit like if I was to have a hot stone massage, how many should I have? Oh, yeah, many. This is good for you. Having, having a space where you can learn to relax is so good for you in pregnancy. Feeling ready and confident about your birth is so important in pregnancy. You can, mental health isn't mental illness. You don't get better and that's it, you're done, you can go now. No. You always work on your mental health. You know, yeah. you always can make it better and better and better. So I've had some women who value that and couples and, and recognise that and say, right, Mia, I want to see you every month throughout my pregnancy and mm. after. But others, obviously, you know, I'm having to charge and that's a big issue. Mm. And they're like, okay, you know, what's the minimum I need? And that's a really difficult question. So I'll say, well, we'll lift the trauma, give you some techniques for childbirth, and then I give them lots and lots of readings. So they can do a lot of the work Do you do themselves. CDs as well? Yeah, we have MP3s. The Mindful cool. Mama, of course, has MP3s. Were you involved with the setup of Mindful Mama? Yeah, so Sophie and I uh, devised it together mm. um, and ran it together for about three years, I think. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, she's made a lot of wonderful changes since. So it's not yeah. quite the same as when we first started no. it, but yeah. But you still work very closely, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Tell me, what are you most proud of about the book? But it only dawned on me after I'd written it that this might really make a difference to people's lives. And reading it again, I thought actually it is reassuring, and there are lots of pointers, maybe is the right word, rather than advice. Yeah. But I'm just hoping, I'm just thinking, because people don't pick up the phone and book somebody, do they? They don't go to their GP and say, oh, I want to see a therapist. But in a way, this is like a pocket therapist, I think. Yeah. And I'm hoping it will do the reassuring, um, the um, mothering that a lot of new mothers need. A little bit of reassurance for them. And if it does help people through a difficult time, then that's amazing. I can reach more people, that's what I'm trying to say. Breathtaking. With this book. Yeah. Good and it, it, it's why perinatal uh, depression matters, Mere Scotland. It's published on the 24th of September. It's available from Pinter and Martin. People listening to this will want to get in contact with you or want to find out more about what you're doing. Where, where can they go to find out more about you? So my website is Your Birthright, all one word, www.yourbirthright.co.uk. Um, email, phone, yeah. text... Are you on Twitter? That's Your Birthright as well. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. At Your Birthright. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And my Facebook page is um, Mia's Birth Site. Well, that has been fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk to us. And um, thank you very Pleasure. much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I've really enjoyed that. <laughs>pretty much all we've got time for having jammed in all of those little interviews um, on this our sixth episode of Sprogcast now sponsored by Pinter and Martin who you can find at pinterandmartin.com Brilliant Hey Karen remind them about the books Do you think I should mention that your book is available again? So Mark has, has written a book <laughs> um, Don't forget that we are giving away copies of Mark's um, Men, Love and Birth and Mia's Why Perinatal Depression Matters um, on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash broadcast, um, to people who comment. So if we have lots and lots of comments, we will be drawing two names out of the hat. And if we only have two comments, we will be not drawing any names out of the hat. And if we only have one comment, then you will get two books. Well, please keep in touch with us on Twitter. That's at Sprogcast and our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash Sprogcast. Our next episode is due out in October, and we're going to be talking about some happier subjects. Maybe we'll throw in a few birth stories and talk to some excited new student midwives. Hey, if you're student midwives out there listening to this, please get in touch with us because we, we'd love to talk to you. And if you have a birth story that you really want to share, we'd love to hear from you too. Uh, I think that's just about goodbye from me, Karen. That sounds like goodbye from you, Mark. Um, and I will say that I, although going into recording this episode, I was thinking, oh, no, this is really gloomy talking about birth trauma. Actually, um, I'm quite pleased. Oh, me too. I, I think it's a subject that needs to be aired, needs to be talked to and needs to be discussed. Yeah. So we've done that now um, and we'll see you next time. So goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Editing and production is by Karen with technical assistance from Pete. Find us on facebook.com slash sprogcast.